At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. One of the topics that I don't think we pay enough attention to, and I kind of jokingly refer to as an unwanted roommate in many people's lives, are chronic diseases or non-communicable diseases, things that we just kind of accept as we get older that, oh, I'm going to have diabetes or I'm going to have hypertension or I'm going to have whatever, insert you know, problem, heart issues, whatever it is, and we just kind of sweep it under the rug as a society and don't focus on the massive toll that it takes on dollars, time, and lives. Today's guest is somebody who has dedicated her professional life to chronic illness and helping bridge funding gaps and help bring solutions to those patients affected with these types of diseases. A truly global citizen, please welcome Andrea Feigl with the Health Finance Institute. Andrea is the CEO and founder over there, which is a high-impact evidence-based investment foundation that helped prevent treat and manage chronic conditions. And in all of her spare time, she's also an associate professor of health finance at the wonderful Georgetown University. Andrea, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you so much for having me, Christopher. And I'm absolutely um, joyed and pleased to be, be having this conversation about this very important topic. I mentioned that you are a global citizen, so a native of Austria, so I think I should go back and redo my introduction. Instead of Habig, I'm going to say Habig, uh, just coming from the old country over there centuries ago, where the rest of the family came over there. So I noticed you looked at me a little funny when I said my last name, but that's okay. We're going to go ahead and move by it. So you're in Washington, D.C. now with the Health Finance Institute, and really, you know, my first question right out of the gates is, what is the Health Finance Institute doing when it comes to non-communicable diseases and chronic conditions for a global citizen? So we are based, as you mentioned, in Washington, D.C. We're a nonprofit organization, and we really focus on bridging the gap between evidence and implementation when it comes to chronic diseases. So chronic diseases are diabetes, heart disease, cancers, um, lung diseases and mental health conditions, and they're causing a huge impact on the health, but also the wealth that we experience both in the United States and overseas. And just to share some numbers, about four to five percent of GDP are impacted in emerging economies because we don't act early enough and we don't act on the base, best evidence. In the U.S., the mismanagement of chronic conditions, so people getting too sick, people not accessing the healthcare systems, not having the right prevention and primary care access that they need, it costs us an effective 9% 
ta uh, tax in taxes, like it, the equivalent of 9% in taxes. So imagine you go and ask the random person on the street and say, what if we taxed your income an extra 9%? Everybody would be up in arms, right? But we're accepting this reality because it's kind of this slow moving tsunami that we're kind of like, you know, it's not like a pandemic where yesterday we were fine and today we have to mask up and stay indoors. It's something that just slowly develops and we've become used to it. So we really focus on making the economic argument and helping public-private financing partnerships to address this issue. Because if we come in and intervene early, we can actually save the health of people, we can save the healthcare system money, and we actually can help the economy grow faster. So it's kind of a win-win-win scenario that we're trying to promote with our work. It's And it's not so simple as saying, all right, in order to prevent diabetes and heart disease, just it's all about diet and exercise. And we hear that, right? We, I think most people who do suffer from these diseases are like, yeah, my doctor told me to get more exercise and eat more salads, eat more greens, and they don't. It's like we always divert to this magic pill of, well, how can this help me? You know, now we have weight loss drugs that are, are very prevalent out there in the world. And what I find is interesting about it is, you know, this isn't just an American problem. Yes, seven in 10 deaths of Americans every single year are attributed to chronic diseases, most likely heart disease. But this is also a problem in the rest of the world. And I think all too often, we as Americans, we get our blinders on and think that, you know, the good old US of A is the only really thing out there that matters. And we lose sight of what is happening globally. So chronic diseases isn't just a bona fide United States problem. Chronic diseases are running rampant across the human population. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why we call it global health and not international health, right? We're really saying it's about the entire, you know, high and low income countries are being affected. And again, like as an economist, I like to state figures, right? I mean, the amount of people that are dying due to chronic conditions is like the same amount as the population of California. So it's literally like as if the entire population of California dies every single year. That's how big the issue is. 50% of childhood cancers in emerging economies are not diagnosed. So those children die of childhood cancers. They never have a chance of survival because there is no diagnosis and no treatment for them, right? And then we have other countries that are a little bit more developed, in the least developed countries such as Malaysia. And there, because of a lack of a good primary healthcare system, 60% of people who have diabetes get diagnosed in the emergency room, right? And what does that mean? They come because they don't feel their limbs. They lose their eyesight. And then often if these um, are adults who are providers in their families, their children, and most importantly, girls are the first ones to suffer because the school fees can no longer be paid and it impacts education and the next generation um, um, in terms of both of wealth and everything else. And so it's again, it's not like a pathogen that travels on planes, but there is a connectivity in terms of the economy and trading partners and just from a human rights perspective, right, as well, in terms of making sure that people have fair innings when it comes to when it comes to their health status and what they want to achieve. What strikes me is we're talking about a human condition. Like you said, this isn't just a rich country problem, a first world versus third world problem. 
we're doing things to ourselves that is happening again and again. You mentioned the cycle of it, right? You know, we know that poverty tends to happen in cycles. So does unhealthy lifestyles. And no matter how rich we are as Americans, we're still having the same problems we, you know, that Malaysians do in being, you know, diagnosed in the ER. You've mentioned a couple times that access and really putting the emphasis on primary care is a solution forward. Is has that been the best way forward that you have seen and your work has seen that says establish primary care? get people boots on the ground, and then that's where we can start making a difference? Yeah, it's definitely one of the recommended issues. And so, again, I'll talk to both the global and the U.S.-specific context. When it comes to um, addressing chronic diseases, you really want to have a very solid healthcare system and not some sort of verticalized treatment like you can do, for example, for childhood vaccines and things like that. And their comprehensive primary care is something that, you know, the World Health Organization promotes that evidence shows by investing in it, you are actually getting the most cost effective results, meaning you get the biggest bang for the buck in terms of your investments, um, leading to better health impact. And you, again, you start treatment journeys early and whether it's cancer or whether it's diabetes or anything else, you're really... Um, you know, that the cost versus burden, it was really favorable towards, you know, lower costs and lower disease burden. Now, the interesting thing is, is that 89, 90% of health is actually not generated in a healthcare system. We have healthcare systems that are primarily reactive. And one can argue whether primary healthcare is reactive or proactive. We want to have a proactive and accompanying primary healthcare system. And I think you mentioned that your platform has this model where the patient is not alone on the journey. The person is not alone in their journey. And whether we see it with, there's something called directly observed treatment therapy when it comes to tuberculosis patients taking their drugs to that system, that model applied in HIV, to that model, you know, applied in chronic disease care, it it works and has benefits. So, and it has benefits again at the health, economic and the cost front, right? But we are not applying it well enough. In terms of the lifestyle choices and or the lifestyle in general, it is a very, very complex issue. Um, as I'm sure you know as well, and probably a lot of the viewers or the, 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 the listenership knows as well, that, you know, the food that is available, the, the food choices that you make, everything from like the school cafeteria to the types of grocery stores you have available to the walk, walkable, walkable score in the walkability score or walking score of your neighborhood to availability of public transportation, sports programs, and so on. There equity and equality or inequality are huge issues playing into that, that, you know, one can also not take away from that equation, right? Because ideally, we want to prevent people from getting sick in the first place. And then we want to keep people as healthy for as long as possible. But primary care versus, you know, investment in tertiary care infrastructure for both the disease management perspective and the fiscal management perspective is definitely a very sound strategy. And currently it's completely lopsided. We put so much time and energy and resources into 
specialties, subspecialties, surgeries. Frankly, Andrea, it doesn't pay very well to heal a patient. It just flat out doesn't in the traditional insurance-based system. Like you said, you know, in the Freedom Health Works world, in our direct care world, yeah, we we are incentivized to help get that patient healthy and then keep them healthy. And so it's a total misalignment of incentives in the broader health system. And, you know, could yeah, I, I was just kind of thinking, getting prepared for this this um, this episode. I'm like, you know, we have so many other dictates that come down from the federal government of you have to have health insurance. But in people's minds, like we need to separate health insurance from health care. Like health insurance is not your doctor. It's just a way to pay overinflated bills that come down from, you know, that's a, it's a different story completely. I'm like, you know, what if they just said, well, soft drinks are no longer legal. Cheetos, Oreos, you know, pick on the big ones like that, that are historically like, these are the foods that are in, you know, food deserts. This is where EBT dollars go to for the, the lowest rungs, of the socioeconomic ladder. Like those are real lasting change, but you know, I hope uh, there's no flashing red lights underneath my truck after this episode gets released, but there's, um... <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, there is, there is this, uh, the concept of commercial determinants of health and it was developed by um, really a leader in global health. Her name is Ilona Kickbush and, and, you know, a couple of other people picked that notion up and it's looking at, you know, it's mainly looking at what are the commercial determinants of ill health. Right. But um, I think there, we, we like to see it as their positive and negative commercial determinants of health, right? Just because it's commercial doesn't mean it's a negative impact on health. But ultra-processed foods, such as the ones that you mentioned, have an outsized impact on obesity, on diabetes, and those externalities, so the health conditions that they create, so both the human suffering and the financial implications are not integrated. So it's kind of the same as, you know, the big polluters, they weren't actually... You know, until we have carbon taxes and carbon emission limits, they weren't held accountable for all the ill that they cause. And right now, we're not ho- apart from like having something like uh, sugar sweetened beverage or health taxes, which California has, and it's almost like a one to one relationship for each percent of tax that you apply to sugar sweetened beverages, you have a one percent decrease in obesity rates in these types of settings where this is being applied. And I guess my point is like, like if the political will was there, right? It's possible to do that. I think you're going to have a lot of people up in arms. I will probably be one, too. That's like, how dare you tell me how many chips I can put in my mouth or I can't go get ice cream with my kids. You can have 11, you can have 11 fries a day based on Dr. Who's study at Harvard School of Public Health. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to actually, I'm going to write that down somewhere and make sure I go get my quota of 11 fries. <laughs> I like that. So moderation, that's exactly what we're talking about. And you know who is going to be on the front lines telling patients and educating them about what they should and should not do is our friendly neighborhood doctor. But it seems like the friendly neighborhood doctor is really an endangered species these days. In the U.S., we talked about some developing countries that are having trouble accessing physicians. Now, growing up in Austria and, and you know Europeans' uh, health systems, very different than what we have in the U.S. and very different amongst each other. What are your insights that you would like to share with us about, you know, really the system that you spent your first 17 years of your life uh, experiencing in Austria? Oh, wonderful question. And let me paint a picture for you. So my great grandparents, they had a small farm and uh, they, you know, they lived through bo- both World War One and World War Two. So 
very you know limited resources you know scarcity and then after the world war you know they came into a little bit of wealth and all of a sudden they were able to eat all the foods that they wanted so having a very fatty diet having a lot of meat in their diet was a symbol of wealth right fast forward they both got diagnosed with diabetes and it was kind of like the fact that they all of a sudden had to now limit those foods that were a symbol of the wealth that they came into after living through both world wars was really difficult for them. But our family doctor, he did a house visit. So we used to have house visits. So he came once a week and two days before the doctor came, well, guess how good their diet was? Very good. And I remember, but the relationship with the care provider, like they would always, like doctors were very well regarded in, in, in you know, in, in those little villages that I grew up in. And so they always got like a little bit extra, right? They got some eggs from the chicken. And then, and I remember this picture of our family doctor climbing the cherry tree off my great grandmother's house picking the cherries to take home for his wife to bake a cake with, you know? So I I think we would be hard-pressed to find that patient-physician relationship in the American context. And I can talk a little bit more about the financing. And the thing is, we have compulsory health insurance, and it goes through sickness funds. The physicians are contracted in the private sector. And of course, they think and probably are underpaid compared to the American physician. And there is a two-tiered system with an additional private healthcare insurance. And yes, the wait times are shorter there. So it's not perfect. But there has never been in the history of me in the system a situation where I'm like, I need care and I don't get it. And a uh, an interaction with my primary care physician where I didn't feel that he was invested in my health and where I didn't feel personally encouraged to basically keep working to whatever health goal there may have been. So, of course, we have high chronic disease, you know, we have chronic conditions, mental health care could be better, but that, you know, that, that interface between the family physician and the potentially chronic disease patient is much stronger than it is in the United States. And I think all over the world, where we look at stuff, you know, there's always this public and private system. Uh, UK has it. Canada actually doesn't. Canada's um, like the one country that you really can't have a private practice unless you're like occupational health for workers' comp and things. But, you know, even NHS um, in the out of the UK, like you said, like the doctors are lower paid. Um, it's it's. I mean, you're just, you got to get into wait times, this kind of a, this kind of a thing. We don't see that much in the United States, but again, the emphasis is, is placed more on the downstream care, the specialist. We're not investing enough time and energy and, and money really into primary care. So our medical students come out and there's active, there's medical schools across the country who say, oh, well, if you go to Venerable University Medical School. We don't we don't make primary care doctors here, and so there's this this like stigma against primary care in the U.S. Mostly based on money and and based on the hours, and so our primary care docs are the ones that actually want to be involved in the community and and want to go out and do right by them. But the payment system is so broken. I think that's what what you know most people when you boil down problems with the U.S. is that. Why are we throwing some arbitrary card in and and uh, expecting that to be like covering it? And we can walk into a doctor and just say, hey, go ahead and fix us without paying attention to the problems and what caused the problems in the first place. So it, I think it's so fascinating, like, you know, from your experience in, 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 in detailing international systems that 
they're all a little bit different, yet we walk in thinking, oh, well, our doctor can go fix anything we do, and then we don't have to listen to them because we're going to have some miracle pill when we walk in in a few months if necessary. Yeah. No, I mean, there is, I mean, there's also linkages between investment in social programs and um, good health. So, you know, sometimes we only look at the investments in health and then the returns thereof, but it's actually, so there's a couple of studies by the OECD, which is an uh, organization of economic cooperation and development based in Paris. And they look at a lot of these types of data and there's a strong linkage between investment in social programs as well and, and then reaping the benefits from health investments. Now, back to your you know issue around primary care and access. And I just wanted to say, say two things. I think the notion of task shifting and I think the U.S. is not doing is actually doing a good job in terms of like nurse practitioners and things like that. So I think task shifting and, um, you know, I think also digital platforms can actually play a big role. Um, and sort of in the incentivization of staying healthy and really making this incentivization a bit more precise. You talked a little bit about concierge or precision medicine. And, you know, for example, like I'm with United Healthcare and and then, you know, they offer me, I don't know, a $20 gift card at the end of the month if I stick to certain things. But, you know, I'm a fairly healthy individual and I'm like, well, I shouldn't be offered the same incentives as somebody who is completely on a you know, might already be overweight, might be older, might be might be a spoker and things like that. So I think we can do a lot there. And I think that connection between those systems, both health and employer systems that generate or support the well-being of the populations that they interact with should be benefiting from that. So in the UK, primary care doctors that had fewer referrals to specialists would actually get compensated if they were able to manage their, their patient um, contingent with uh, chronic conditions better. Basically, if they could keep diabetics like with, you know, with regulated blood sugar for an HbA1c levels for a longer time and not refer them out to an endocrinologist or other special specialist, they would actually personally financially benefit from that. And obviously the patient would benefit from that too. You know, when once people hit the age 65 in the U.S., like, employers, insurers, that communities that contributed to healthier populations get no benefit from that, right? And so, so there are ways of aligning incentives within insurance systems, within large employers, um, and even I think at the compensation level through these innovative structures. And this is sort of what we're working with in our organization saying, well, Better health will benefit everyone in terms of productivity, in terms of health outcomes, in terms of costs incurred to the system. But you need to buy in from the politicians, you need to buy in from companies, and you need to create the right environment for individuals. Um, Because I think nobody wants to be sick. And this is also our logo, right? NCDs, nobody chooses disease. And maybe for some <laughs> crazy fringe groups out there, I think the statement can be universally applied. So, you know, uh, we probably won't have time to talk about this, but there are incentive structures for insurances for um, and for payers to actually make sure that providers and patients are benefiting from creating better health rather than from just providing more treatment. I agree. Um there is a way to incentivize the right type of behavior. I don't think we've done a good job of hitting that yet. And incentives are hard. Anybody who started their own business understands that 
building out employee incentives is one of the hardest things you could possibly do, maybe second to like pricing strategies. But, um, you know, making sure that the lot, your, your rewards are completely aligned with the actions you want to drive. And I think that's where we fall down a lot of times too. I love your quick shallow dive into Medicare there that you're absolutely right. Like people think that once I hit 65, hey, I got it on, I'm on easy street right now. And they don't realize that this is a government bare minimum program that is not tailored to what they need. And you're exactly right. Whether you're a train wreck or you're somebody who's really taking care of themselves, you're not rewarded for that whatsoever. And you're actually penalized the longer you stay on your employer program or your self-funded program, you're penalized for not joining Medicare. So it's just, it's so bizarre. And, you know, in my world, we have all of our doctors opt out of Medicare. So they don't participate in it whatsoever because we have so many doctors that actually do house calls and that do pro bono care. And the way that those Medicare regulations are written right now, if our doctors charge a Medicare patient less than what Medicare reimburses, that's considered Medicare fraud. And it's just like, what? why are we disincentivizing people from acting like human beings and taking care of their fellow neighbors? And so incentives are a big part of our world and, and a big part I believe the solution. Andrew, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from one of our great sponsors, Freedom Doc. After that, I do want to dive into really your background and your motivations because what you've done here is really set out to tackle a very large, very expansive task. And I want to dive into really why you woke up one day and said, hey, this is, this is what I want to go do. So first, a quick message from our sponsor, Freedom Doc. Physician burnout is a killer. It is driving our best and brightest out of medicine. The only solution to burnout is to be your own boss. The easiest way to be your own boss is to join the Freedom Doc Physician Network. Freedom Doc is a unified consumer brand and will fully finance your practice so that you can enjoy a healthier lifestyle, take better care of patients, and spend more time with your family. You focus on patients. Freedom Doc focuses on your business. So if you're ready to be your own boss, visit our website, freedomdoc.care, to learn more and schedule a free consultation with one of our experts, Freedom Doc Accessible concierge healthcare. We are back with our special guest, Andrea Feigl, the CEO and founder of the Health Finance Institute, as well as associate professor of health finance at the wonderful Georgetown University. Andrea, we were spending a lot of time in the first part of it just talking about global issues, and we're talking about chronic diseases, and we're talking about misalignment of incentives that happen in the U.S. and other developed countries and in third world countries and in underdeveloped countries. countries as well, that there's a lot of similarities between the human condition. I'm curious with your background, a classically trained ballet dancer and amongst other things, like how did you get to this spot? Was this what you wanted to do ever since you were a little girl? You know, I think serendipity is probably the word that describes my my journey. Um, And so I was always very interested in biochemistry and in understanding um, medicine and people that made a difference in the medical field, both in terms of research, you know, finding a cure for HIV, or, you know, I was reading um, the biography of the person who transplanted the first uh, human heart. And so I always wanted to basically apply myself in the field of health. And I was always very interested in sort of international development, because I, I don't know, I, you know, people are drawn to different things, but I was always drawn to help answer uh, or help find solutions to the issue of that you know, every, everyone should have a fair chance in life. And being healthy is 
necessary it's a it's a necessary condition in order to reach your own full potential and i was also very interested in medical science so i meandered a little bit i i started out in undergraduate uh, studying biochemistry was doing a lot of um benchtop research and uh looking at protein folding and had my favorite protein but you know as in a, i was the only girl in a lab with 17 other male scientists and i just and it takes a long time to you know study things and i i realized that was not my best conduit of change and i stumbled into public health when i was in my early 20s um and fell absolutely in love with a reading list of the master's program and also my mentors there so one of the first books that we read was a book named pathologies of power by the late paul farmer and he basically promoted the notion that no matter whether you're poor or rich you should have the access to the best healthcare possible. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you should be condemned to having second or third rate care. And that message really resonated with me. And I was really inspired also by the ability of policy to make changes in people's lives. So I was an international student in Canada and we didn't have health, good health insurance and we didn't have dental insurance. And then our student president um, implemented this policy that we had access to dental care and it made a huge difference um, to me personally, but also to the whole student body. And so instead of like that one-on-one model um, of, of, of medical care when you're a physician, I really felt that my calling was in international policy. So I was very fortunate to always have very good studying was easy for me, you know, um, doing economics and health economics was something I felt I could become good in. So I felt that was sort of a an area where I wanted to basically apply myself and look at some of the big issues. And then um, I I had the great um, opportunity to work with mentors at the World Health Organization and the Center for Global Development and, and with some of my professors at Harvard who were really leading scholars when it comes to chronic diseases, chronic disease management, uh, measuring health states and, and looking at the economic burden of diseases. And we published in 2011 this big paper together with the World Economic Forum. And we measured the economic impact of inaction around chronic diseases. And that's $47 trillion in just about 20 years. And so that's like, it's a massive number, right? It's again around that 3 to 5% of GDP of, of countries. And I thought, well, we were presenting this at the UN in 2011 and some world leader is going to start caring about it, right? Like, I mean, gee, like, doesn't it make sense if we care about, you know, economics? Like, even if you don't care about health, wouldn't you want to invest in this? Nothing happened. 2014, second high-level meeting, no international action. 2018, I was at the OECD, same numbers, almost 10 years later. And I actually sat in the chair of the director general of OECD, representing the OECD at this high-level meeting, had brokered lots of international relationships at that point, and again, nothing happened. And I said, well, I can keep studying or I can try to start an organization that at least tries to change and make a difference. And so, you know, I always think about, are we really making a difference? But this year we were actually recognized by the UN and received uh, an award by 42 UN organizations as one of the two NGOs in the field this year who made an impact on chronic diseases and chronic disease financing. So looking back, those five years have been hard and it could, you know, it's not easy to fight that 
elephant in the room of chronic diseases and chronic disease financing, but at least we're trying trying to make a difference as opposed to just keep pushing out numbers as important as they are. If they're not applied, then, you know. No, I hear you. And, and I think... I think the problem is the chronic diseases can't be solved within the next election cycle. So no. we just kind of kick it down. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. I know it's it's kind of like, you know, de-link politics and health and we will we will be so much better off, you know. And I like health because it's supposedly, I mean, it should be a non-political topic. Can't we all agree that we all should be healthy for the betterment of each other in society and economic growth? I mean, but that's probably the topic of another podcast, right? You know what? There is a lot of agreement. And, you know, going back, and I feel like this episode, I still have to, like, call out if I'm switching to U.S. politics versus international politics. But even in the United States politics, in the Senate, like, there is a lot of agreement that we do need to invest more in primary care because people will tend to listen to their primary care physician if they see the same physician and develop a relationship and develop trust. So, like, there's even, like, an asterisk you know, on that line, you can't just have a revolving wheel of white lab coats and stethoscopes telling you what to do. But if people establish a relationship with a doctor and they establish trust, they will listen to that person. And they will listen to that person when they tell them to go get, you know, test done at this place or, you know, go get a surgery done here. So there's a lot of care navigation and a lot of, I guess, cost savings and a lot of education that can happen in primary care. So point is, even our, our deeply divided Senate agrees that primary care is vastly needed where they disagree. And I think that's your point is who pays for it. <laughs> that's the big thing, right? Like what you just said was, yes, this is a society problem. This is a global problem. How do we get to invest in one another? And then on the micro level, if I'm sitting here saying, wow, I'm investing in our society's health, just the same as that guy over there. And that guy's smoking 15 packs of cigarettes a day and drinking three bottles of booze. What is going on here? Why why am I being punished for his unhealthy habits? And that's where a lot of the disconnect happens on ground level. And I don't I don't know how to how to how to solve for that one, right? Especially with the ACA now where everybody's kind of in it together rather than penalizing the people who are unhealthy. But the flip side to what you were saying is how do we increase access? You mentioned Paul Farmer, and he's a subject of a phenomenal book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Details his story going through here. And that was kind of an early, I don't know, kind of wake-up call for me. You know, I, I'm the son of two physicians here in the Midwest. Um, I thought community doctors and walking to restaurants and everybody knowing who you were, I thought that's what all doctors did. Very naive of me, I guess, uh, <laughs> as I grew up and realized that, wow, the more, more we commoditize doctors, the more money we put into hospitals and, and insurance companies here in this country. But we're dealing with people that want to help out, right? And so that's always the big question is, how do we how do we get doctors to the point where they are able to see any patients and establish the trust and help those patients out? And I'm curious to hear, you know, your work through the Health Finance Institute on how you answer that question. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're we're really looking at it from a semi-systems perspective, right? And in terms of like, you know, um, care delivery and care service delivery is one of the core functions of a healthcare system. So like there's, you know, there's financing, there's care delivery and governance and several other functions. And so basically the contracting between the payer or the insurance provider and 
the the physicians and the way that occurs and the relation how that is crafted at the policy level can have these massive implications. And I don't think there's a single healthcare system that gets it all right. But I think it needs to be a mix between understanding where the market can work and where the market doesn't work in this, right? So where we're saying like, you know, we want to make, you know, in order to widen access, we need to increase the risk pools, we need to increase you know, the, the pooled resources that, that we collect. And we also need to make sure there's a, there's a good distribution of different likelihoods of getting sick, right? And then you have the ability to negotiate certain conditions that are both favorable to the patient, to the financial well-being of the insurance, as well as the as well as, as, as those who provide that care and making sure that incentive is actually aligned. So some ways, um, you know, there is this emerging... Um, field of value-based care and it's early and not every single value-based care contracting gets it right but it is at least an attempt to say what are we doing that actually creates value to the patient and because that usually then also aligns with the notion of the you know the physician who wants to care and can care right and then also lowering the administrative burden on the physicians as well which is again i think 50 60 percent i mean the stats are just absolutely outrageous right so if you have a more simplified better framed contract between these three uh, entities i think then you see a better relationship there and i just want to say like you know I, i painted a very rosy picture about austria but it's also that, you know, a lot of physicians, primary care physicians, there are also opting out of the national healthcare system because, you know, you have almost like, you know, you can have something called death spirals where you have more and more patients and very limited reimbursements and they say, why don't I just go to the private sector, right? So this tension between caring for everyone versus the satisfaction of physicians which is a balance between pay and actually being able to care for the patient, um, is very difficult. So I don't have the ready-made answer for you, but we really look at it from a like not an individual perspective, but also the like, you know, the contractual perspective at the systems level. Cutting out a lot of waste. I I think uh, I've heard administrative burden is, you know, you said fifty to sixty. Sometimes I hear I heard seventy to eighty percent. Like it's just like man. There's a lot of people with their hands in the pie that aren't providing any value between that interaction between a doctor and a patient. So, Andre, last question for you. I want to pull out of healthcare real quick. I want to switch over to dancing, like we <laughs> talked about. Like you're a professional ballet dancer in all your free time and uh, with your family. And I see now that uh, your passions are leading you to the salsa and the Argentine tango. What's your word of advice? What are you going to tell listeners when they're like, you know what? I want to get into the salsa. I want to get into the tango. I don't know where to start. What's your words of wisdom? <laughs> well, first of all, there is a strong linkage because it improves your mental health and your connectivity of your neurons. So it causes better uh, brain health and actually lowers your likelihood of uh, adverse cardiovascular events. So there's a lot of medical reasons to go into dancing, but... 
above that. Um, so I think it's never, people say, oh, I'm too old or I have two left feet. And I think that's an absolute myth. I think anyone who hears music and feels moved by music can dance. And it just takes any, like anything else, you need to put the time in, right? It's really the amount of time that you spend with a subject matter, whether you practice the piano or go dancing. So you're not going to conquer the world or the dance floor in the first lesson. It will take a couple of months, so don't be discouraged. And I think there are lots of like groups. So like in DC, for example, we have Capital Tangeros, for example, and there's events every single night and there is lessons every single night. And I think that the most important thing is like join a community where you feel you fit in and you're welcomed and also find a teacher that you feel resonates with your own learning style. And then, you know, let, let the passion carry you forward. I love it. So many parallels, so many lessons to fun and work in the healthcare world. So I, I appreciate you drawing those parallels and and uh, giving us a little glimpse, you know, behind the scene, behind, uh, behind the woman there that drives you forward every single day. Andrea Feigl, CEO and founder of the Health Finance Institute, Thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. It has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and the pleasure was all mine. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.